Welcome to this special episode of Stacks and Stories, the podcast of the Mississippi Library Commission. On today's episode, Mississippi State University Professor of History, James C. Geeson, talks about the powerful cultural place of the American farmer and touches on topics as far-reaching as Thomas Jefferson and Jason Aldean. This presentation is made possible by a grant through the Mississippi Humanities Council. Please note that the following audio has been pulled from the Ain't That America, History and Culture in the Country video, originally recorded on June 10th, 2020, as part of the lunch lecture series posted to the Mississippi Library Commission YouTube channel, and has been edited to better fit the podcast format. So, stay tuned! Hi, and welcome. I'm Tracy Carr with the Mississippi Library Commission, and welcome to MLC's first Zoom lecture in our summer lunch lecture series. Today, we're gonna learn about the rise and fall and rise again of the American farmer in rural life and American culture. Before I introduce our speaker, just some housekeeping. You all um, will be muted. I control the muting. Um, but if you have a question, you can put it in the chat and we, at the end, we'll loop back and get those questions. Um, I'm pleased to introduce Dr. Jim Geeson. Um, he's a professor of history at Mississippi State. He researches and teaches in the area of American agricultural history and is currently writing a book about the place of agriculture within American culture. So welcome, Dr. Geeson. Thank you. So I talked to Tracy about this in the weeks before. This is such a weird way to give a talk. So what I did is I actually pre-recorded my talk. Um, so now I'm going to share the screen and I'm going to hit play. And, uh, and then I'm going to re-emerge live at the end uh, and, and answer any questions. I think if you have questions now, though, you can just leave them in the chat and we'll sort of pay attention to those and answer them at the end. Yes. So, all right. All right. Here we go. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> it's going to be fine. It's going to be perfect. Okay, so uh, this is a talk called Ain't That America? History and Culture in the Country. So in part, this is a talk about farming. I want to talk about farming, but really what I'm interested in is what we talk about when we talk about farming. So this is going to be a talk sort of about farming, but really it's about American culture. The, the central question of the talk is this. Why does the idea of the farmer in America have such a supreme place? And what power has it had in history? So I first started thinking about what I'm going to call romantic agrarianism when I was a kid. I grew up in Michigan in a small city, uh, and then I went to college in Indiana, and I started meeting in Indiana, um, you know, kids who'd grown up on farms. So I met a bunch of uh, students, made a bunch of friends who had grown up in rural Indiana, many of them on farms, and I started thinking, not really in a conscious way, but started thinking about what exactly the differences were between city and farm life. Because my whole life growing up, like for most Americans who were raised in cities or suburbs, the farm held a kind of mythical status. As far as I knew, it was a different kind of place, a place where one's fate was really tied to their own labor. Whether they were successful or whether they failed was really dependent on them rather than a bunch of other forces. A place where you produced much of what you consumed. It seemed to me the kind of place, again, thinking like a, a teenager growing up in Michigan, it seemed like the kind of place where changes didn't happen all that often. But as I met more and more farmers and read more and more history, I came to realize how silly most of these assumptions were. I wrote a dissertation on the rural South, 
uh, a book on farming in America, and I, and I still research and write about food and the country today. But there's one part of this idea that I've never really read much about and haven't done much research on, and that's what I'm calling romantic agrarianism. This idea that Americans, no matter where they live, have these positive and powerful ideas about farmers and farming. So that's what I want to try to explore today in the next 30 or 35 minutes or so. So, romantic agrarianism is that, that warm and cuddly feeling that Americans get when they think about farmers, farming, and the rural countryside. Agrarianism is basically the idea that the simple rural farming life is superior to the complex industrial life of the cities. So as I'm going to try and show, it's, this is a very old idea, but it's one that has been changing almost constantly throughout American history, and it's one that, as I suggested a second ago, is far more powerful than I think is just. It's an idea that needs a new critical examination. Now, before we get too far into the weeds, I should add that this is an idea that I've been uh, thinking about, and, and as I said, I haven't really written about. So it's very much a, a sort of rough draft. Uh, I say that not to lower your expectations of the talk, but to hopefully elicit some questions during our Q&A, which will be live. It's exciting. So very much a work in progress. Please help me sort through some of these ideas when we get into question and answers. Okay, so we're gonna move around a lot through time and uh, across the United States, throughout American history, uh, a lot in the next half an hour or so. And I'm gonna throw a bunch of different things at you. Every now and then I'm gonna cut to a visual of my uh, regular kind of PowerPoint slides uh, to try and keep us all on the same page. All right, hopefully this works. Here we go. So I, I want to begin not where you might think we would begin a talk of romantic agrarianism. That might be with, I don't know, Virgil or Thomas Jefferson or Wendell Berry. Uh, but I want to start instead with the 2013 Super Bowl. It was the fourth quarter and most of the 111 million people who had tuned into the game were still watching, mostly at that point for the commercials. And this is what they saw, a two minute, $15 million advertisement. And on the eighth day, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, milk cows, work all day in the fields, milk cows again, eat supper, then go to town and stay past midnight at a meeting of the school board. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody willing to sit up all night with a newborn colt and watch it die and dry his eyes and say, maybe next year. I need somebody who can shape an axe handle from a persimmon sprout, shoe a horse with a hunk of car tire, who can make harness out of hay, wire feed sacks and shoe scraps, who planting time and harvest season will finish his 40-hour week by Tuesday noon and then pain in from tractor back, put in another 72 hours. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody strong enough to clear trees and heave bales, yet gentle enough to yean lambs and wean pigs and tend the pink combed pullets who will stop his mower for an hour to splint the broken leg of a meadowlark. So God made a farmer. It had to be somebody who'd plow deep and straight and not cut corners. Somebody to seed, weed, feed, breed and rake and disc and plow and plant and tie the fleece and strain the milk. Somebody who'd bale a family together with the soft, strong bonds of sharing who would laugh and then sigh and then reply with smiling eyes when his son says that he wants to spend his life doing what dad does. 
God made a farmer. God made a farmer for the farmer in all of us. Now, when I first saw this ad, I thought it was touching. Uh, the next few times I watched it, I thought it was troubling. Now I find it infuriating. And it's not because I don't like farmers. It's not because I don't like Dodge trucks. It's because this ad isn't about farming at all. It's not even about pickup trucks. It's about those of us who don't farm, I think. It's about the farmer in all of us, wherever that is. Now, many of you who are at least 35 or so will recognize the voice in the ad as Paul Harvey, a radio host whose career on AM radio lasted from the 1950s to 2000. Harvey was a folksy newsman whose signature, hello Americans, stand by for news, reached more than 20 million Americans a week during the heyday of AM radio. When he died in 2009, the New York Times called him the homespun voice of middle America. The Times summed up his career like this. He railed against welfare cheats and defended the death penalty. He worried about the national debt, big government, bureaucrats who lacked common sense, permissive parents, leftist radicals, and America succumbing to moral decay. He championed rugged individualism, love of God and country, and the fundamental decency of ordinary people. Harvey himself described this point of view as reactionary one that sought not to change the world, but to shelter your and my little corner of it. These themes of rugged individualism, love of God and country, and the decency of ordinary people are certainly clear in Harvey's narration of the Dodge ad from the Super Bowl. It's not subtle about its message. Farmers are strong, honest, hardworking, tough, yet caring. And let's not miss the overall point. Farmers were created by God, as stewards of the land, as caretakers of the earth and the animals on it. This farmer is timeless, static, fixed. Farmers do not change, the ad supposes, as the world changes around them. The traits that make them great Americans are the same in 2020 as they were in 1814. So I'm going to refer back to the image of the farmer that we've just seen in that Dodge ad. So I want to name it something. I'm going to call it the Dodge Farmer, and you'll hear me refer back to the Dodge Farmer. And I'm talking about this single idealized image that, as we're going to see, isn't, isn't unique to that Dodge ad, uh, but I'm going to call it the Dodge Farmer. So one reason for this timelessness, I should point out, is that Paul Harvey's speech was not written in 2014, the year that the Super Bowl ad aired, he was already dead. That audio came from a speech he delivered at the National Conference of the Future Farmers of America, the FFA, all the way back in 1978. But that's not where the speech came from either. Harvey didn't write it, in fact. He probably first read it in a newspaper clipping from the Gadsden, Alabama Times, where it appeared in 1975. The author of that article had himself lifted it from an earlier incarnation, which dated to 1940 appearing in an, in an Oklahoma newspaper called The Farmer Statesman. That's the first time we can locate the God Made a Farmer essay in the public record. The fact that an essay written before World War II could resonate 35, then 40 years later, is telling. Over that same time period, from World War II to the 1970s, no area of the American economy has changed more drastically than agriculture. No way of life for a sector of Americans has undergone more upheaval than for farmers. American farming in 1940 bears little resemblance to farming today. In fact, what I'm gonna argue this afternoon is that this message, this image of the Dodge farmer is so resilient, not in spite of the radical changes in American rural life, but because of those changes. 
Americans gobble up these images of the farmer, of a farmer, trapped in the past as relics of a time in America when thin, things were simpler because Americans find that image so comforting. Why does that matter? The image of the Dodge farmer clouds. It disrupts. It disorganizes what Americans think about a whole bunch of different things. Things that are obvious, like rural life and farm policy, but also things that are seemingly unconnected. Issues like obesity, the nature of work, meth, the environment, big business, suburbs. The idea of the farmer that we see in that ad, and I'm gonna show you a bunch of other places where we see it, is one that distorts Americans' ideas about a, a range of different and important issues that are all interconnected. But rather than try to back up to 1776 and sweep through all of American history to the present, showing you how romantic agrarianism has changed, I'm narrowing my focus to four issues. Labor, politics, First, poverty, labor, and food. One of the most powerful aspects of Dodge farmer agrarianism is the idea that what makes farmers different is their work, their labor. And not just the nature of their work, but the idea that their work, and little else, decides their fate. The only thing that they're dependent on, it seems, is nature and their own strengths, their own abilities. Now, this is an old idea. Consider the days of the early Republic, when farmers advanced westward from the Atlantic coast in search of new lands to put into production. Farmers, of course, brought more than seed to the frontier. They brought ideologies, ideas about how to organize a society. One of those ideas was that the work of farming brings with it liberty and democracy, that farming brings with it democracy. Take, for example, this medal given in 1785 by the Philadelphia Society for Promoting Agriculture. It shows a farmer walking behind oxen, cutting a row with his plow, his well-ordered home and barn in the background. And who's that walking alongside of him? That's Lady Liberty, the symbol of personal freedom that followed the farmer's row. We see this idea even more clearly in the painting Manifest Destiny by John Gast. Manifest destiny refers to something that most Americans believed in the 19th century, that Americans, let's be specific here, white Americans, were destined to move across the North American continent, to settle the lands, to put down roots, to make farms and homes from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Here in this image, we see Columbia, that's the big lady there, as she walks from the light of civilization in the east, on the right, to the dark of the western frontier. The West is symbolized not just by darkness, but also by Indians. The West is symbolized not just by darkness, but also by Native Americans, cowering in her presence, and also wild animals. Look at what she brings with her. White people with technology. There are farmers here. We know that by the tools that they have, like shovels and hoes and plows, and by the straight furrows they dig as they walk. The East is shown in light with trains and boats and bridges the technology of civilization. The farmers here are your 19th century Dodge farmers, controlling and civilizing nature as they move across the continent. So clearly farmers' ability to tame wild nature was part of the celebration of farm work, but there's another component that became even more important in the 20th century. And that's this notion that farmers are independent, that their work is solitary, that all they need is land and seed and their muscles. It's a very attractive idea, though from the beginning, it's been absolute hogwash. The idea that farmers control their own fate is an idea given to us not by rural people, but by urban people. We can chart the rise of this idea of farmer independence along with the drop in the numbers of actual farmers. 
Now this is a very imprecise chart made by a historian, me. Lines. One of them is farms, the yellow line, and the other is the number of people in the United States in, in groups of 10 million. Okay, so from 1800 to 1870, the lines go up almost in tandem, right? We see a little bit of a separation there between 1840 and 1870, where you start to have a few more people than you have farms. But now let's look between 1870 and 1935. So between roughly the end of the Civil War and the Great Depression, we see those numbers uh, steadily change, right? The number of people in the United States is going up way faster than the number of farms. If we continue that to the present, it's pretty revealing, right? The number of farms peaks in 1935. The number of farmers drops down to what it is today, a level that was seen most recently around 1865, around the Civil War, but the number of people just keeps going up. So keep this chart in mind as we move through this talk, all right? The number of people who are actually farming drops, not even just as a percentage, just as a number, it drops after the Great Depression. But the number of people in the United States who aren't farming, right, goes up a lot. So let's look at another uh, slide here that, that represents this, and this is farms per capita. As you might expect by looking at the chart bef before, the previous chart, the number of farms per person starts in 1800 at, at you know, almost 10%, so almost one farm for every 10 people, and it drops by the 21st century to something near zero, right? The number of farms per capita. A couple different things are happening here, right? Farms are getting bigger is one of those factors. So each farm is becoming 10, 20, 100 times what it had been in 1800. But also each farm is producing a lot more. Now you might say to yourself, well, what if the farms are getting bigger? There's fewer farms, but more and more people are working in farm jobs, right? There might be a lot of people. Well, there are a lot of people who are working on farms who aren't farm owners, that aren't even tenant farmers, as we had in the last century. But let's look at the percentage of jobs in the U.S. that are any kind of farm job. This is any job in the agricultural sector. 90% of Americans were farmers in 1790, and it drops to less than 3% in 2000. 3% of U.S. jobs have to do with farming. So clearly fewer farms are feeding more and more people. We'll talk about why this is, but what I'm really interested in is how this affects the place of the farm in American culture. If farmers' work is so important, if it's so vital, why does our economy need so few farmers? Here's what I think. We want to believe that farmers decide their own fate with their labor because then we have a meritocracy, not a complex web of capital and labor, of technology and global markets. The Dodge Farmer image suggests that some workers' lives aren't dependent on mysterious economic forces from around the world, that their lives depend simply on hard work. The idea here is that suburbanites and urbanites who look at the farmer want to believe, knowing that their own lives, their own urban and suburban lives are so dependent on, on bosses and banks and capital markets all and, and, and demand and, and surplus and, and, and prices, these factors all over the world, that they want to believe that out there in the heartland, that there are these people who are completely independent, who, who, who rise and fall based on their own abilities. 
So what are the ramifications of having an urban population that thinks the rural population is all farmers? This is a good time to move to theme number two, politics. Only 2% of our rural population actually works as farmers. But you wouldn't know that if you paid attention to politics. Since Thomas Jefferson, farmers have represented a certain kind of virtue in the political arena. Jefferson famously called farmers the most valuable citizens. And he hoped that his new nation would be made up not of bustling cities with their banks and industries and employees, but would be a nation of small farmers who controlled their own destiny. It was a popular idea from the beginning of the nation that independent, rugged, small farmers should be the backbone of democracy itself. It's an idea that has not died. We could never think of any politicians who tried to take advantage of associations with farmers, could we? Now the problem is that since the mid-1700s, farming was not an industry that lived in its own cordoned-off world. It was one that was increasingly dependent on suppliers of feed, of seed, of fertilizer, of labor, and on markets, places to sell the stuff that they raised on the farm. This was capitalism. Now, I'm glossing over some history here, but suffice it to say that those settlers who moved west under the feet of Columbia were farmers and they did establish farms, but once they did, they were a long way away from those people back east in the cities who needed to buy their farm goods. These farmers then turned to the government. The explosion of government investment in infrastructure, like roads, canals, railroads, was the result of well-organized, concerted political pressure brought by farmers who wanted access to markets. Rather than rejecting the urban economic hubbub, they embraced it. They, in fact, needed it. Later, groups like the Farmers Alliance or the Populace, the Grange, shaped all kinds of federal and state laws to make farming a regulated part of the economy. Here's my point. Far from being detached from politics, farmers were, from the 18th century to the present, a savvy, well-organized political force. For further evidence, let's jump ahead to the 1980s. Some of you may remember an event then called FarmAid. This was a huge concert organized by the country singer Willie Nelson that took place in 1985 in Champaign, Illinois. It came on the heels of a very successful Live Aid concert, which had brought together dozens of pop music stars to raise money for famine relief in Africa. While Live Aid had a very specific mission to alleviate famine in Africa, the point of Farm Aid was a lot less clear. It was at some level a response to what was being called at the time the farm crisis. The farm crisis was a term created by the media to describe a very real problem in the 1980s, namely that of thousands of small farmers described as family farms being pushed off the land. It was a very complicated set of economic and political regulatory issues that were making uh, farm bankruptcies climb. But farm aid didn't really at that stage ever address any of them. Generally, those participating claimed to be there to save the family farm, but what that meant was not exactly clear. For example, during the performance of Seymour, Indiana's own John Cougar Mellencamp, who had donned an FFA blue corduroy jacket and signature blue jeans, he called on the crowd to sing along with him as he exalted the American farmer in song. As the band played the opening lines of Pink Houses, a very popular song of his, 
He called out to the 80,000 people in attendance and the 20 million watching at home, I want to sing a song I wrote for you people. The song, which had reached number eight on the Billboard charts a year earlier, was an odd choice to dedicate to this crowd. Pink Houses is a song about not caring when society transforms around you. It's about letting the government build a highway through your front yard while you simply sit on the porch with your cat and wave at the cars. It's about letting go of your crazy dream to be president. Ain't that America, Mellencamp sang to the crowd, for you and me. Clearly a better choice to open his set would have been Rain on the Scarecrow, a powerful tale of a man losing his farm, uh, losing the farm that his grandpa had cleared and his father had worked before him. But while the narrator is angry at the auctioneer who sells it, there's no clear cause of the problem. As he says, the crops that grew last summer weren't enough to pay the loan. The message of Farm Aid didn't get any clearer when legendary country outlaw Merle Haggard took the stage and performed a new song called Amber Waves of Grain. He'd written it just for the occasion. If the amber waves of grain should disappear and there was no wheat or barley anywhere, I don't know what happened to it. Would we buy our bread and butter from the Toyota man? Would an Idaho spud be stamped made in Japan? Haggard referenced live aid in the second verse, asking, can we kick a bit of that foreign aid to the farmer over here? Because of farm aid's inability to actually address, even to raise as an issue, the larger political and economic forces that were actually causing farm bankruptcies, it made farmers into victims, a group that needed help. The result, I think, was a split in the farmer image. Remember my chart about the number of farms? The 1980s saw even more farmers leave the land, but it also saw a sharp rise in the suburbs. The idea that farmers needed help, I think, fostered an idea in the larger American culture that farmers were even more different than us than we had thought before. Us, namely urbanites and suburbanites. A greater cultural separation there. Rural life and farming then became an antidote to city life. Country life seemed the simple alternative to busy corporate lives, shuttling kids to and from soccer practice in the booming suburbs of the country. Do I have evidence of this? Some. I can at least tell you that country music underwent a sea change in the 1980s. It moved from the redneck country of the 1970s, which was very critical of life in the country, that painted farming as difficult work, to a more refined, celebratory music. Think here of Garth Brooks, Travis Tritt, Toby Keith, etc. This latter music experienced a tremendous boost in popularity. It was way more popular than the country music that had criticized farm life or that had just noted that, that living in the country was hard. Radio stations all over suburbia and urban America switched their format to the new country sound. It wasn't only popular out in the country, in other words. This was an idea that was incredibly popular in suburbs and cities. For more evidence, we can just look at electoral maps. It will surprise no one to hear that there are more Democrats in urban areas and more Republicans in rural areas. But I'm not sure most people appreciate just how divided we are over this rural and urban split. First, let's look at who is urban and who is rural. So on this map, the darker blue are the 146 most urban counties, and the lighter gray areas are the 3,000 counties that are less urban, or in other words, rural. Now, what's amazing about this map is that within the blue areas and the gray areas, there are equal populations. There, is many, there are as many people living in the blue as in the gray. So how does this map on to voting? And we know that the last few presidential elections have been incredibly close, and this maps, of course, to that rural-urban divide. Look at this chart, for instance. Since 1988, the urban counties, the most urban counties, have become more democratic, 
and the uh, rural counties have become more conservative. We see in the counties in the middle, those with some urban population, some suburban population, and some rural population, that the Democratic-Republican split is almost equal. And of course, candidates running for office at the state and federal level know that this split exists. So Republicans have come to call rural America the real America. These candidates go to great lengths to show that they're from real America and therefore prepared to lead the country. So the result of this is that we get this red state, blue state divide and think that all reasonable political opinions can be narrowed down to whether you live in a progressive coastal city or in red, real America. Let's look for a second at electoral maps from the 2012 election to see just how these ideas are actually misleading. So the first map shows red states and blue states. Again, this is the 2012 election. The blue states went for Obama, the red states went for Romney. But if we start to look at county level data, we see that actually within these red states, there are pockets of blue. Look at Mississippi, for instance. You also notice that within blue states, there are huge pockets of red, Michigan, for instance. But this map too exaggerates the amount of people who live in those rural red areas. So if we skew this 2012 electoral map based on how many people live in each of these districts, then we make cities look bigger and we make rural areas where there are fewer people look smaller. That's a weird map, but it does show you a little bit better picture of how equal we are if you take into consideration population. So the urban-rural split is not complete. We live in a purple America. But the idea that coastal elites hate rural America is alive and well. So now let's hear a song that hit the top of the country charts about 10 years ago. It's a song that, that gets right to this idea that people on the coast don't understand people in rural America, people in the center of the country. This is Jason Aldean, Flyover States. The audio for this song is copyright protected, so it has been removed from this presentation. So let's move to category number three, and that is poverty. Once again, let's check in on that Dodge farmer. Do they look rich? Do they look poor? They're operating some very costly machinery here. Some of those things are, those combines can cost like $300,000. And the Dodge trucks that they're selling can run you $65,000, $70,000 for a farm truck. But I think on the whole, the image here is that of someone who is far from wealthy. In fact, I challenge you to think of any rich farmers in American popular culture. The reality of American farming today and for the last half century is that there are many, many moneyed interests in agriculture, but few actual farmers. I don't have the time to get into all the specifics of why agribusinesses have grown in number and size since World War II. Happy to talk about that in the Q&A if you want to. But suffice it to say that farmers have gotten bigger and bigger because it took more and more capital to farm efficiently. This led to more companies owning farms because they could secure loans to buy more and more costly machinery, seed, and chemicals. Many of these farming companies became so big, they started to combine with seed companies and trucking companies and feedlots and food processors. That's agribusiness. And the result, as I've shown you in chart after chart, is that we have lots of businesses involved in agriculture, but few farmers. So what does this have to do with poverty? The rise of agribusiness is directly related to rising rates of rural poverty. Nationally, rural poverty rates are about what urban rates are. In the South, they're actually a lot higher. Rural poverty rates are eight to 10% higher in the South than urban poverty rates. 
But what I want to focus on isn't how the rates compare from cities to the country, but how agrarianism clouds that way of thinking, the way we think about rural poverty. American culture treats urban and rural poverty very differently. Rural poverty has been naturalized. It's become something that's okay because it seems scraping by is just what rural people do. It's almost a badge of honor in this rural American culture. Think for a second about the lasting images of the Great Depression, black and white photos of broke rural farmers. These images stuck in the nation's consciousness, along with Woody Guthrie songs and the Grapes of Wrath, and they present rural people stuck in black and white. It's no accident, I think, that the Dodge commercial shows us many of these farmers in black and white, a nod, I think, to those Depression photographs. The Depression taught us that rural poverty was okay. If you don't believe me, let's ask Alabama, the, the group, the country group, not the state. Let's listen to their song, Song of the South. Think about the way that they use images of the Depression to put themselves back in time and bring together many of the issues that we've been talking about with poverty and class and politics and especially rural identity. They wear their poverty here as a badge of honor. Let's take a look. The audio for this song is copyright protected, so it has been removed from this presentation. Now, the final topic I want to talk about is food. Paul Harvey's Dodge Farmer is a man who takes care of the land, a caretaker. The grocery store aisles are full of the same images. These are labels designed to obscure the reality of food production in America. Now, surprise, surprise, a green giant does not actually pick your peas. A fair-skinned maiden with a bonnet does not harvest your raisins. And obviously the makers of our food want us to think that our broccoli, chickens, and bacon come from small farmers who care for the animals that they grow. We know differently, of course. And over the last decade, really 20 years now, we've seen an explosion of really good journalism about the American food system. From Michael Pollan's book, Omnivore's Dilemma, to the great documentaries like Food Inc. and Big Corn, uh, we know that our food is, is the product not of independent farmers, but of government subsidies to multinational corporations who engineer our food in laboratories and they process it in industrial factories uh, that are not so far from Upton Sinclair's vision uh, offered in in the jungle and that's just the food we make at home consider for a moment the ubiquitous roadside attraction the Cracker Barrel the Cracker Barrel restaurant chain promises home cooking at the nearest interstate exit indeed they're Locations are strictly suburban, a feature designed to allow for upwardly mobile Americans with a bit of spending cash to step back in time, to walk onto a porch with rocking chairs, rocking chairs that you can buy from the shop inside for $230 a piece. You step through a faux country store replete with penny candy that any nearby octogenarian will, will claim, this is just like I used to buy as a boy. And finally, you reach a dining room with a fireplace and old farm signs that aren't really old affixed to the walls. The food, the clutter on the walls, the server's dress, the faux antique John Deere sign available for purchase in the store, it's all designed to make you feel not like you're in an overcrowded suburban landscape, about uh, a nine irons distance from probably two or three Starbucks, but rather that you step back into time to a place where the food was homey and simple, a mythical agrarian place that never actually existed. When food companies and restaurants peddle us this mythical, romantic image of farm life, they obscure the much nastier reality of low-wage farm work performed disproportionately by poor, non-white women and men. 
Paul Harvey wanted to foster this particular, mythical, timeless image of the American farmer because it was comforting to him. He, and many of his listeners, wanted to believe that there was still, in the 1940s, the 1970s, or the 2010s, that there was still this group of people out there who were stuck in time. Embodiments of the American ideal, the Protestant work ethic, alive and well. That they were engineers of their own success and failure in a world where hard work determined everything. They wanted to believe that there were people and a place that was escaping whatever societal changes were afoot at the time. The prominent place of men, white men to be specific, in these images underscores just how out of touch this mythical rural America is and has been. But this myth, of course, is just that, a lie that we tell ourselves about who we are as a nation and what is possible. But what I hope I've showed you this afternoon is that the lie we tell ourselves about farmers distorts our ideas of so much more. The agrarian myth pushed on us by restaurants, uh, Nashville songwriters, tractor and seed companies, Dodge trucks, politicians, radio hosts, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, even farmers themselves, is more than wrong, it's misleading. In order to truly reconnect rural and urban America through our politics and economics, we need first to stop telling each other this lie. Thank you. Uh, now I will magically come before you live and answer your questions. You're back. That was awesome. Not just the content, but the whole presentation with being outside and the video and how you choreographed the bug and then the wasp and the rain, all of that really heightened the experience. I had a really big special effects budget. <laughs> yeah, it was good. Um, a couple of things in the, the chat. First of all, I forgot at the beginning to uh, say that this talk is made possible by a grant from the Mississippi Humanities Council. So just wanted to make sure everyone knew that. Also, we learned in the chat that you're the winner of the, the Humanities Council's 2020 Humanities Scholar Award. So congratulations. Thank uh, you. But also interesting, we learned you're one of the all-time shot blockers at DePaul University. I'm going to have to go in the chat and figure out who, uh, who posted that. It is true, yeah. Okay. Someone had a comment about the, maybe you can tell us more about the God Made a Farmer speech um, and where it originated. I, I mean, you mentioned it, but if you could tell us more about that. Yeah, so uh, it's a little hard to trace, but it dates to uh, basically an editorial that someone wrote in an Oklahoma farm news newspaper. I think the date I said in there was in 36. I think that's right. And it's one of these things that, and this is this happens throughout, well, old-fashioned newspapers. Anybody who's, who's looked through old newspapers has seen this. But, you know, a story that's repeated one place just gets picked up and mm -hmm. not accredited and, and rewritten other places. It happens in agricultural stuff all the time. And so the story kind of kept popping up and popping up. And then, and then eventually someone sent it to Paul Harvey, who read it on a show. And that's when it sort of became like this national sensation. We also have a comment, if you could talk about the racial images of farmers, uh, there's an implied whiteness that doesn't really reflect the South. Yeah, isn't there? This is an area that I should have gone into in greater detail. In the same way that we naturalize, this is this point I tried to make in the poverty section, we naturalize poverty, that like it's okay for farmers to appear poor, in part because of the impressions of the New Deal, the photographs of the New Deal. The situation for African-American farmers which is bleak from the beginning, right? There is no great heyday of black farming in America. Most black farmers were in the South. 
right? They start as slaves. There are very few free property owners or free African-Americans before the Civil War who own property, who have successful farms, very, very few. And then after emancipation, you know, the, the great majority of African-Americans are still farming. They're farming as tenants. In the South, we think about sharecropping. There are a few other arrangements that sort of fall under the umbrella of tenant farming. But African-Americans are a huge part of the agricultural system. That's the most important point, right? But they are being taken advantage of at every turn. Uh, The period of Jim Crow in the South is kind of the nadir of this. But amazingly, there are these stories, stories isn't the right word, there, are, there, there were thousands of African-Americans who were good farmers, who started out as tenants and made a little money at the end of the year. We always think about sharecropping as a system of perpetual debt, uh, which was true for, for the bulk of, of black farmers, I mean, and white sharecroppers as well. Um, but African-American, there were few African-American farmers who had enough money at the end of the year to buy a mule, to buy a little piece of land eventually. And what happens is those few people from the 1920s forward, there is a pretty systematic attempt by the United States Department of Agriculture and by the state extension services to basically make it particularly hard for those farmers to succeed. So uh, I should have put up a chart of the number of black farmers. There's a great article in The Atlantic from just a couple years ago maybe even less than that, that details this, that talks a lot about Mississippi farmers. There was a settlement in, during the Clinton administration where uh, African-American farmers sued the federal government saying that the USDA had gone out of their way to sort of try and run African-American landowners out of business. And they won that settlement, but in this Atlantic article details this, but like the very few black farmers actually benefited from this settlement, even though the U.S. Department of Agriculture was found guilty of, of this. So, and then, you know, the, the, so that's the African-American farmer story. And then the, this idea in the Dodge Farm ad, there's a couple of African-American farmers in the ad, but that's a white story and that's a white image and Cracker Bell Barrel is, is selling a white agrarian image. And that's, uh, I'll just say that's not a mistake. We have links to that article people have found already in the chat because they're amazing. One is a librarian, I know that. And we have this comment. Although they're called farmers in the commercial, the imagery is more of cowboys on the Great Plains. In the Mm -hmm. Aldine song, he even refers refers to the trucker as a flatbed cowboy. They don't look like any Mississippi farmers I know. Second, the black and white depiction of proud multiracial poverty in the commercial seems to me to help validate the policies of white supremacy by offering a response for white people regarding privilege. Yeah, I mean, those are great points. I've never really thought about the Great Plains kind of cowboy image. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we could talk about the role that different crops play in this. At one point in my life, and maybe in the future, I was trying to write a book about this same story, but just around cotton. So if you think about um, the popularity of those cotton license plates that are on the front of a lot of cars in Mississippi, and and 10 years ago, it was a lot of t-shirts. Students in my classes wear those shirts that just say cotton. I was trying to sort of unpack and assimilate what that's about. And I think maybe that Great Plains cowboy thing has its own story like that. That's a, that's a really good insight that I hadn't thought about. Proud multiracial poverty. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking I was thinking black and white in the sense of the photographs, but maybe this person is thinking because they say multiracial poverty. It's helps validate the policies of white supremacy by offering a response for white people regarding privilege. I'm not sure exactly what that means. Yeah, maybe that person wants to just like um, say it in a different way in the chat or something, which might be helpful. But yeah, or Dylan, you want to, you can unmute yourself if you'd like, commenter, maybe not. 
put them on the spot. Yeah, we do have one more question. How does the idealized image of farmers affect federal farm policy? Uh, let's see. Now I was actually, I was sorry, I was reading the <laughs> comment yeah. that the producers put back. So let me just answer that real fast. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so this person is just clarifying that white people can be poor too. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, and, and what white poverty means in the country is fundamentally different than what black poverty means mm -hmm. in the country or in the city, right? Uh, and I think it seems like Americans have a very different sense of what rural poverty means for white people than black poverty does anywhere, but particularly in, in urban areas. The racial aspect of this is just like runs through all of these ideas about farmers. Okay, what was the other question? Let, let's get this, this one next that just popped up. Where did the money from Farm Aid go? Yeah, so it went to a bunch of good, um, I kind of, I think I kind of come down hard on Farm Aid. The, the money was distributed. It, they didn't really know what to do. Farm Aid was put together in like, I'm, I'm not exaggerating, like six weeks. At one point, the Reagan administration is trying to get a train to take a bunch of people from Washington to Illinois. The, the, the glue is literally, or the, the paint is literally drying on the stage as the first performers are stepping out there. I mean, the whole thing was really, and they didn't know what to do with all the money. So it got broadcast by the network that is no longer in operation, one of those uh, old cable networks. Anyway, uh, they broadcast it. They got a lot of money. And um, Farm Aid to this day continues as a concert. And they, continue, they have a big foundation now. And they are much more direct about how they're giving money to individual family farmers. They're trying to support not only the individual farms, but our yeah, families. Um, they're trying to basically lobby to get better legislation for small farms. They're trying to create community markets and that kind of thing. But in, initially they were just uh, trying to, I don't, I don't know exactly where all the money went initially, um, but they did distribute it. It's not a scam, like in that sense. <laughs> okay, uh, additional comments. How has romantic agrarianism collapsed regional differences between rural areas? And yeah. another uh, concept, another part of the question altogether. Uh, song of the South starts with footage of the Dust Bowl. They should have shown gullies if it was really a song of the South. Yeah, that's a good question, Josh, uh, or a good point, really. Um, Josh is a professor, so you know that you know it's a professor when they say, "I don't really have a question; I have more of a comment." <laughs> right. Classic professor move. Yeah. Uh, no, that's that's a great point. It doesn't really matter for Alabama, right? Whether this is a true portrayal of the South, which Josh suggests. The, the problem was more of gully erosion in the 1930s and before mm -hmm. than it was the Dust Bowl. But all these things get kind of folded together, just like he's saying. You know, we, they, they could have had footage from Iowa, they could have had footage from Oregon, from California. The idea of the rural really does get collapsed. And that's one of the things I was trying to talk about in the political section too. People who live in Portland and New York City tend to think they have more in common than people who live in Portland and in some country town 100 miles from Portland. That cultural divide. And this idea of farmers really does collapse, as Josh says, all those different geographies. It's a good point. And well, this will be our, our last question. Um, how does the idealized image of farmers affect federal farm policy? Uh, it's a great, great question. So one of those slides that I put up in the beginning was this basic point that no industry has changed since World War II more than farming, um, more than agriculture. I think that's true. And as the federal government has stepped in to support big business, to support agribusiness more and more, whether it's to take land out of production, to pay farmers to not grow, to just subsidize farmers when there's a trade war with China, all of these things. Every time you go in front of Congress and you say, hey, I'm, I represent the farmer, you have, whether you literally have the image or not, the farm lobby carries with it the benefit of this romantic agrarianism that I described. You always are benefiting from this idea that, well, we got to help the farmers. 
because people have this idea in their head of what a farmer is. And that's one of the things I'm trying to explain in this talk is that like, I don't know. Uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. But uh, yeah, that's the sort of the point that I'm trying to make in the talk is that people benefit from that idea and it's sort of out there and it's like, and it's a runaway train. So people benefit from it when they go, go in front of Congress, yeah. Okay. Our commenter has continued. Like farm sub subsidies, and I think you did address that, and the way the idea of passing down farms to kids helped make the case for getting rid of estate taxes. That's another great point. Whenever you have an agricultural issue, whoever you need to talk to about it, you, you, you're already on second base. You already come with a great advantage because people have this idea of what a farmer is. It's just a very unrealistic idea. It happens in tax, tax laws, trade wars, whatever. Are there any more questions? Let's see, we have some people just saying, hooray, they enjoyed it. Thanks for having it. Great topic. And I want to thank you again, Dr. Giesen, for joining us and being our first in this series. This was a great talk. We, I think everyone enjoyed it. Basically, everyone who logged in stayed here, which is a great metric. So really appreciate you doing this. And I'm going to answer my phone. All Thanks, right. everyone, for joining us. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Stacks and Stories, the podcast of the Mississippi Library Commission. We hope you will tune in next time, and we encourage you to visit your local public library often.